You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, weeks like this... Make it easy for us, man. When you have a podcast where every single week you talk about the mixing of the martial arts, when you get a weekend like UFC 273, you got to enjoy them because, frankly, it's not always like this. And UFC 273 gave us three pretty fascinating featured fights, two of them because they turned out to be a lot more competitive than the odds makers forecasted, and one... Uh, Because it just turned out to be a showcase for the champion, man. So as we record this episode this week, uh, you know, I guess these are the weeks that we do it for. These are the weeks that that we record the podcast for and frankly fits right into our format. Just makes it easy for us to figure out how to do this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking about this a while where it seems like there have been some resets, some reshuffling a little bit and how the UFC approaches some of these pay-per-view cards. This is that good shit that I like to see. When we're telling the UFC, get back to doing the old shit. Yeah. The the good shit back when you were like, fuck you, man. This is that shit, Chad. Because this is the one where we take a, a sort of holistic approach to putting together a good pay-per-view. It's not just dependent on one name you want to see at the top of the card. One fight, stuff like that. You know, two title fights. Uh, another prospect who everybody's very excited about, a couple other good fights on the main card. You just load it up because you don't ever know what you're going to get from any one fight, any one fighter on a given night. But if you load it up and give us a whole bunch of good, potentially interesting stuff, something's going to come through. And here it did. That's exactly right. We're going to be taking a close look at the top three fights on this fight card pretty much the whole hour in this show. A reminder, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. Don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram at CME if you nasty and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash co-main event. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries. And if you think we're having fun right now, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben Folks and I are party rocking over there with three additional podcasts every single week. We got the Wednesday live chat, Thursdays doing the damn thing, and Friday for the power hour. People seem to like it. We have a patronage tier for every budget. Go over there, patreon.com slash co-main event, and check us out. This week's music comes to us from longtime listener, a.k.a., or James, I'm sorry, a.k.a. the Funk Soul Brother. He's a retired amateur MMA fighter and hip-hop producer. He lives in Seoul. Ben, he sent us some new tracks. He uh, he sent along this note that said, now obviously this came in before UFC 273. He said, I thought it would be cool to have some new beats on the first CME after, not if, the Korean Zombie wins gold this weekend. 
Well, the first one samples traditional Korean instruments to celebrate the Korean zombie. The second one is a more aggressive beat uh, for all the shit eating wild men out there. And the third one is just a bit more introspective to close out the final round and just saying stuff. Now, obviously, things did not come to pass like the funk soul brother hoped they would in the UFC 273 main event. Nonetheless, we thank him for the new beats. They're all pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more at Instagram.com slash FSB Beats or YouTube.com slash C slash Funk Soul Brother Beats. And as everybody knows by now, the word soul in Funk Soul Brother is spelled S-E-O-U-L because that's where he lives. You see what he did there. Everybody knows that. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Kamzat Chamaev and Gilbert Burns went to work on Saturday at UFC 273. We laughed. We cried. Perhaps most importantly, we all learned a lot. And in round number two, all Jermaine Sterling would like his apology filed with human resources in triplicate. And make sure to BCC one and done motherfucker TJ Dillashaw on that email, too. And in round number three, a virtuoso performance from the men's featherweight champion, Alexander Volkanovsky, leaving the impression, man, who is going to beat that fucking guy? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is brought to you by our old pals at Fulton and Rourke. Ben, if you broke into my house sometime when I wasn't around right now, and you went to go spend some time in my shower, you absolute okay. weirdo. You know what you'd find? You'd find a bunch of damn Fulton and Rourke stuff in there. I've got the Fulton and Rourke body wash in there. I've got the Fulton and Rourke face wash in there. I got the Fulton and Rourke uh, brick of bar soap in there. And just for good measure, I got the Fulton and Rourke deodorant. I got the Fulton and Rourke hair styling and beard oil. You know why? Because I love it. And that's a shoot, brother. I wouldn't ask all the little co-maniacs out there to do anything I wouldn't do. And every day, I use Fulton and Rourke. They got the jumbo containers now, too. You buy this stuff, you're going to be using it for a while. I can guarantee that. Tons of cool stuff going on at Fulton and Rourke. If you want to check it out for yourself, CME listeners can save 15% on their first purchase with the coupon code IFYOUNASTY, all one word, all caps, IFYOUNASTY, at FultonandRourke.com. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com. First question this week, Ben, comes to I us like, from Simeo. I like that this scenario started off with me breaking into your house to spend some time in your shower. Yeah, I was going to. That's what I, I would gonna, do. I was going to breeze right through that. Well, you're we all know you're a weirdo. The problem, though, Chad, is that why would I go and hang out in your shower with all your Fulton and Rourke shit when I got the same shit in my shower, man? That's true. I mean, I assume. Obviously, I would be trying on your clothes and walking in front of the mirror and then doing your voice. Like, I'm Chad. I'm a big dummy. <laughs> well, Obviously, that's what I would you'd do. You'd probably still be smelling all that Fulton and Rourke. <laughs> First message this week comes to us from Simeo, our old buddy. We use music from him on the show frequently as well. He writes, what is it with MMA fans and arguing over a decision based on scoring criteria they just made up? <laughs> That's okay, yeah. Today, I saw multiple multiple people argue that Peter Yan should have won the fight because he was starting to take over in the last two rounds, with the implicit assumption being that the, quote, championship rounds are somehow more valuable than the first three. 
It's like going, sure, my soccer team made fewer goals overall, but we scored last, so really we should have won. That's not in the rules, man. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Now, above and beyond just Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling and what people might be thinking about this particular fight, this is something that happens a lot. Not only yeah. not only among fans, but like among uh, professionals in this sport too. Like, oh yeah, we're just out here kind of tacitly admitting that we score these fights based on a completely subjective criteria that, in many cases, we just made up in our own brains, and that's how we decide who wins. And you know what? I don't even know that you can totally blame us because the scoring criteria themselves can change from organization to organization, from locale to locale. They've uh, revamped the scoring criteria a couple times since we've been paying attention to this sport. And the whole thing is just not as clear as it might be. And I think because of that, you create this situation where fans and others are out here just kind of look watching the fight, deciding who they think won based on, on their own opinions or their own uh, set of criteria. Okay, that was going to be, though, where I went with this is that, yes, Simeo is absolutely right that people do this after, especially after any close fight. And they do it not just with stuff like my guy was winning the last two rounds, which basically that's kind of a nod to the Stockton rules that the Diaz brothers laid out before, which is giving the edge to the person who seems like if this fight had just gone on until somebody was killed, who's looking like they would win that such a fight. Uh, But. People also do it with stuff like, uh, you know, I don't know, man, he had better octagon control. You know, like they're just repeating a piece of what they heard when somebody went over the scoring criteria in a, in a vague sense right at the start of the event without really digging into it to see how it's supposed to be applied. But aren't people mostly doing that sort of like reverse engineering their way into an argument in favor yes. of the guy who they just wanted to win? Yes. The guy who they were a fan of. They were not just going, hey, I came into this com- at completely zero on either side. No bias in favor of either guy. I watched the fight. I thought this guy won, and here's why. They, it's like they started out wanting one guy to win or wanting one guy to lose, perhaps. And then they're just going to pick and choose whatever you know argument they think supports that after the fact. It's, it's not like they were just going around and being like, this is what I saw. And that's why I'm applying it here. They're 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 starting at the conclusion that they want to reach for their argument, and then just looking for something to support it. Yeah, yes, they are absolutely 100. percent And sometimes people who are on UFC broadcasts do the same thing, and it seems structural to me the problem that we're dealing with here, just because the actual scoring criteria are so unknown among a lot of fans among such a large percentage of fans that, that indeed we are here to figure out who we think won or who we wanted to win based on stuff that we just come up with in our own heads. And in some cases you have some sort of limited comparisons that happen in other sports, but for the most part, like you don't see this in a lot of, in a lot of other sports, like you don't see people, uh, you know, trying to figure out if a guy actually scored a touchdown kind of based on their own, criteria right like the rules well, are in a lot of sports are pretty but, clear cut and in this one it just seems like we've had so many changes and there's been so many questions and there are eternally controversies with which judge scourge which fight which way that like a lot of people are just out here kind of freestyle and making it up themselves but isn't that maybe 
kind of what we like about this sport. I mean, it gives us that, something to talk about. That's for damn sure. I mean, it's definitely a part of whether people realize that they enjoy it as much as they do or not. It's a, a kind of a, a traditional part of post-fight festivities, especially after close big fights, close title fights, goes to the scorecards. If there's any room for disagreement at all, it's going to be having the same argument where people are going to be saying, I think this guy won this round because of this. And that's part of the enjoyment that we get out of it because the scoring criteria are not terribly well-known. And even if they are well-known, it's always not, or it's not always easy to tell how exactly they should be applied in five minutes of fighting where a whole lot of different stuff can happen. And so I, that argument is never going to go away. We're always going to have those arguments. I guess I just wish that we would be a little bit more honest with ourselves that this is, this is part of the fun for us. Is having this discussion afterwards and getting mad at each other about it. I might make some of these arguments later in the show. I, I don't know. Uh-oh. We'll just have to see. Uh, you know, I honestly, I think another part of it is sort of an acknowledgement that you know we, maybe an acknowledgement of the universal nature of fighting. That kind of like we feel like individually that we can look at a fight and be like, oh, I can tell who won this, and yeah. maybe a, an acknowledgement, though I hate to admit it, of Dana White's. Now years old proclamation that fighting is in our DNA and that oh, we all God, we, we, we all understand it. Like I feel like there's a lot of people who watch this sport that are just sort of like, Well, I can tell who won a fight. You know, I can watch this thing and, and tell who I think won. And, you know, sometimes those ideas don't quite mesh with the uh the actual unified rules. Yeah. And you know what? That the the fighting is in our DNA part, maybe, but Arguing about close decisions, definitely in our DNA <laughs> as true. fight fans. That is true. Next question this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson, who writes, can we take a minute to discuss Mike Malott and why he's already one of my favorite guys after his UFC debut? While I'll only have one fight to base this off, he has a very entertaining fighting style. He's artistic. While there wasn't quite enough blood coming out of his nose, he still made a valiant effort to attempt to draw a heart with it. He's eloquent and seems like a genuinely good guy, making a measly 10000 to show, uh, which he announced he was going to donate to help a 15-year-old with cancer and also bringing attention to their GoFundMe, which has made a huge amount since then because of him. I'm always hoping for a Canadian to get behind, and I'm excited to see where he goes from here. Thank you for listening to my dissertation on why Mike Malott is one of my guys. Uh, I mean, again, we talk about this pretty frequently that, that you know, if you're going to be an undercard preliminary fighter in the UFC in this day and age, when there are so many people out there on the roster, so many people fighting on any given night, and then another fight card coming up next week and one after that and one after that and one after that. Uh, it's a it's a, a a job of work just to stand out. It's an accomplishment yeah. just to stand out. And here you got Mike Malak going out there, not only knocking out Mickey Gall in the first round of their welterweight fight on Saturday night, but also uh, finding a way to uh, to stand out, to be to be remembered. And for, in this case, for pretty admirable reasons, trying to, you know, get the story of uh, I believe it's the daughter, right, of one of his team alpha male coaches has yeah. been diagnosed with with cancer and they're they're having a fundraiser a GoFundMe uh for her and so yeah I agree with all of this wholeheartedly hats off here to uh Mike Malott for going out there and finding a way to stand out on a card full of a bunch of a bunch of other fighters where we were going to give all the attention obviously to Kamzat Shemaev and Aljamain Sterling and Peter Yan and 
Volkanovsky and Chan Sung Jung. And, you know, there's there's a fair amount of Mike Malott stories out there this Monday, too. So so good right. work by him. Did you see the the him showing up afterwards and saying that somebody handed him what he described as, quote, a wad of cash? Yeah, I had it in an envelope at the uh, at the post fight press conference. Right. I want to know what's going on inside the, the mind of that person, because he's out there. He's he's trying to direct your attention to a link to a GoFundMe. That's and like the link is on his Instagram, I believe. And you go, I could do that. I could just go straight to the GoFundMe again. Or, you know what? Let's just, let's pass the hat yeah. right here in uh, section H, row, row H, you know, seats 16 through 32. Let's all just pitch in some money, put it in an envelope. When he walks by here, just just stick it out there for him. Just shove it in his hand. That You know what? And then, then we're good. Uh, the other part I wondered about, though, was he when he when he was explaining this and he was like, I'm giving my show money, which he then explained was ten thousand dollars. So mm-hmm. he's on the basically that 10 and 10 shit, that that entry level UFC contract. Um, depending on how the taxes all shake out. I mean, you're a Canadian fighter. You come to the US, you fight here. They, 10 and 10. And if you're given the show money, you you might have just ended up fighting for free. I know, you know, there's whenever you do this, it immediately puts pressure on Dana White to be like, no, you don't have to do that. I'll give you I'll give you the equivalent of your show money to this same charity. You know, we saw how that worked out before with Bryce Mitchell. But it's like if you're making 10 to 10 and you're going to take half of that right because you're going to be taxed on all of it. I mean, I'm not obviously not a tax accountant here, but you, you put yourself in a tough spot. Yeah. Well, that's I did see on Twitter. I can't remember who it was now posting it, but they said that Dana White's name, at least at the time, had not yet showed up on the donors of Mike Malat's GoFundMe page. But you know whose name had Jake Paul. So, OK, he's out here not missing any chance to show up, to outdo, to grandstand, to style on Dana White. I mean, how do we know Dana White isn't just because he's like, you know, hey, the nature of charity should be anonymous. Like, I don't I shouldn't want the yeah, thanks for it. He might have like, signed up I'm, anonymously, but I think we all know he didn't. Is there like a $10,000 donation on there from somebody named Guy Incognito? <laughs> have we checked on that? No, there's a bunch of uh, donations from Jake Poop. And we know that that's Dana White <laughs> trying to make fun of Jake Paul. Uh, I like the idea of just giving a guy an envelope of cash. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Am I just saying stuff, but you know, maybe it's a whole section of, uh, of like mafia dons hitmen. Okay. They're just like, they yeah. think they're at a wedding. I'm just going to mm-hmm. give an, give the guy an envelope full of cash. Nothing wrong with that. It's, it's hitmen's night out mm-hmm. at UFC 273 in Jacksonville. Like, like they do the hitmen all go to take in a UFC event in Jacksonville, Florida, retired, and retired. Then, mafiosos. And then they say, this guy seems like a good kid, you know. Let's just stuff some some cash in that envelope. Uh, but then I think if, the rule is that then when you hand it to him, you gotta also reach up and give him a, a couple of smacks on the cheek. You yeah, know? you keep your nose clean. Yeah, you're a good kid. You're going places. Next question this week comes to us from Dustin Pettit, who writes, "It's AJ McKee Fight Week over in Bellator. He's good, and it's time for our twice yearly reminder of that." this week. Anyway, I was browsing his tapology page this evening. Not only did he make his pro debut in Bellator on a de- developmental deal, he now has amassed 18 fights there in a row. Uh, 16 to get that initial title shot. Jesus, son. Uh, 
So yeah, it's Bellator, what is it, 277 this weekend, Friday, April 15th. They're down there at the SAP Center in San Jose. This is a twin bill of title fights as well. You got AJ McKee and Pitbull going to rematch. Don't know if that would have been the fight I would have booked, but uh, that's the one we're going to do. And then you've also got the light heavyweight title. It's the Grand Prix final. Vadim Nemkov against Corey Anderson is also on this fight card. So uh you know, if you're, and you've also got the People's Championship, Tim Johnson versus Linton Vassal. Okay, there's also that. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're looking for something to do on Friday night, this is one of those Bellator cards that arguably deserves more attention than it might well get. Yeah, uh, and if I can be totally honest with you, has just snuck the fuck up on me. Yeah. I, I did know. not realize that this was coming up this soon. I, how is that possible? How is it that we just that you're not out there shouting from the rooftops? That you got AJ McKee coming back fighting this week in the, in the rematch with Pitbull. Well, I mean, I feel like I knew it was happening sometime in the amorphous future, but I had no idea that it was coming up so soon. I think that is one of the issues here, right? That's one of the problems here, because if you will recall, back in the immediate wake of Bellator 263 in July of last year, when AJ McKee had defeated Patricio Pitbull, uh, to win uh, the, the Grand Prix, to win the Featherweight World Championship. The question that we asked on our podcast immediately after that was, hey, man, AJ McKee is really good. He is arguably the best fighter in the world fighting outside the UFC right now. He's a young guy. Uh, he's got tons of charisma. He's very talented. Bellator is lucky to have him. Now the question is, what can they do with him? The question was, can they capitalize on this? And I think at this point, you got to sort of look at least in the short term and say the answer to that question was no. Because first of all, AJ McKee hasn't fought since then. This will be his first fight since winning the Featherweight World Grand Prix. Uh, they booked him in this rematch against Pitbull again, which, like I said, I don't know if that's exactly what I would have done. I might have looked for another different opportunity to try to get AJ McKee some shine. But uh, like you said, we haven't even really talked about it. Here we are. We're a week out and we're going to get this fight. I, I mean, I understand. My heart kind of goes out to Bellator in these kind of situations because it's hard to get any attention in this industry where the UFC dominates so much of it, such a large percentage of our attention. And yet, like, I feel like it's kind of a missed opportunity. Like AJ McKee is there, should be their number one guy. And I just don't feel like we have gotten a ton of AJ McKee news or reasons to remember him or reasons to even keep it, keep him in the forefront of our thoughts and our imaginations. And now here we are, he's going to fight Pitbull again. He could go out and mess around and lose this thing. And then what do you got? You're back to where you started. Well, then you got yourself a trilogy, my man. Uh, you're right. I mean, that it is. it sort of highlights the difficulty that Bellator is dealing with here in that you have this fight coming up. And frankly, it should be a weekend that you don't have a problem dominating in the MMA space with your lineup when you look at what you're going up against with the UFC. Like the UFC has this uh, fight night event and, you know, uh, Vicente Luque versus Bilal Muhammad. Okay. But you, you're coming out here with two title fights, one of which includes this guy who we were all getting pretty excited about, and it feels like you kind of let some of that heat die down. You should be owning this weekend. And yet, it also seems like, oh shit, that's this weekend? Yeah. Had no idea. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Donkey Dave. He writes, okay. Henry Cejudo is back. 
So, time for some game theory. Okay, Donkey Dog. Oh, of course. Uh, of course. Who does he fight? What weight class does he fight in? How will he do? What various pillow-based props will he use? These are the questions we're all dying to know the answers to. Now, I don't know that any of that is game theory, but I'm also just, I'm going to take Donkey Dave's word for it, as far as I know. Ben, Henry Zahudo, Henry Carlos Zahudo is back, 35 years old, jumping into the pool. And of course, by the pool, I mean the USADA testing pool. Uh, We're coming up on the two-year anniversary of Henry Zahudo having made his last UFC appearance at UFC 249, his win over Dominic Cruz. Uh, It's been a hot topic of conversation, at least on this show now and again, of whether or not Cejudo would get back in, of whether or not the UFC wanted him to get back in or if it cared even a little bit. Now it seems like he is going to come back in. What's your initial response to this? And uh, I guess, can you answer some of these questions posed by Donkey Dave? Well, I am really excited about the possibility of Henry Cejudo coming back, especially if what he means to do, as he has suggested, is come back and fight Alexander Volkanovsky at featherweight yeah. to become a three-division champ. Um, I was having this conversation on Twitter with people because I put something up there being like, it's crazy to me how excited we are not by the prospect of Henry Cejudo coming back. And, and to some extent, I get it just because of how he has gone about being the king of cringe uh, ever since his retirement. He has continued to do this thing where he's talking about coming back. Uh, the UFC has just been like completely uninterested in it. First, it was, I'm retiring unless they pay me, and to which the UFC said, well, okay, Enjoy your Thanks. retirement then. <laughs> we we had a, we we enjoyed you being here. Uh, let us know if there's anything we can do for you in retirement. Uh, you know, collect your your gold plated watch on the way out the door. And now he's basically doing the meme of one like, and I will return to the UFC. And then he is the one who clicks like and says, "All right, damn it, I'm in." And yet, especially after Volkanovski goes out there, dismantles the Korean zombie who came in as a heavy underdog and we saw why and then he went you know what these guys at featherweight give me somebody to fight somebody take that top spot i'm getting sick of it i'll go up a division if nobody is ready to go out there and prove that they deserve a title shot and henry zahudo says you know what i was a champ in two other divisions uh, i was olympic gold medalist still got it i'm still in the game coaching people let me get back in that you saw the testing pool and i'll come for you and i'll give you a fight and i go this should be fucking easy yeah. to promote this, they're, they're just dropping it right in your lap and you just go, all you have to do is say, yes, okay, we will take that fight. Because frankly, stylistically, I'm interested in that fight. Even the people who think, no, Volkanovski is too good right now, Cejudo's been out the game and uh, you're just getting older at all that time, fine. Uh, you telling me all those people who love to hate on Henry Cejudo wouldn't enjoy seeing him take an ass kicking from Volkanovski? Of course they would. Yeah. This is just easy stuff. To, to get excited about and to hype up. And it just seems like nobody's really that interested in it. And, and it's amazing to me because, as we have talked about on multiple occasions before, Henry Cejudo does have a really legit claim to being the best combat sports athlete ever. Yeah. He's at least in the conversation. If he were to come back and in his first fight back, defeat Volkanovski to claim a UFC title in a third division, he's a goddamn legend at that point. And still people just treat him like he's a joke. Yeah. I don't get it. Well, he kind of, he played a role in that. Well, okay. And that's what people say is that, but it's like, 
I remember us giving him credit for just being willing to do something to bring attention to flyweight, a division that the fans were routinely indifferent about, that the UFC never seemed to work hard to promote. He was going out there. He was doing something. He was giving you something. Yeah. He was trying. Absolutely. And that was our complaint for years about Demetrius Johnson was that he's super good. He doesn't really care if you watch he doesn't really care to try to sell it to you. Uh, he just wants to go out there and be super good. So here comes along a guy who is also super good, and he's really trying. And now our complaint became, eh, he tried too hard. It's yeah. not cool. <laughs> yeah. He's a dork. Yeah. Uh, I don't like the way he tried. And it's like, okay, fine, fine. But it's a stupid-ass sport if we look at somebody who has been that good at it, as, as Henry Cejudo has, and he's... Out here saying, I want to try to make history by taking on this incredibly difficult challenge. Probably they could just pound for pound one of the best champions the UFC has right now. I want to come back and take on that guy. And we go, no, you're a dork. We don't like you. Yeah. That's fucking dumb. Right. That's a dumb sport if I, that's what we're doing. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think there should be more news and excitement around a possible Henry Cejudo return. I think Alexander Volkanovsky is the fight to make. He needs an opponent. Cejudo needs something interesting to do. It would be an incredible stylistic fight. It should be one, like you said, the UFC should be able to promote. And, uh, you know, beyond that fight, if that one doesn't happen, if that one doesn't uh, materialize... It's also a real target-rich environment right now for Henry Cejudo. You got new champs in both those other divisions, too, like Aljamain Al Sterling at bantamweight, uh, Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno seemingly locked in an endless series of fights at, at flyweight. Peter Yawn still hanging around now. We'll talk about that more coming up later in the show. Uh, there's a lot of potentially interesting and good fights out there for Henry Cejudo if he's able to come back and make you know, an extended run of it over the next couple of years or whatever it may be. But I agree with you. Volkanovsky is the one that I would like to see. And it should be, it should be an absolute spectacle that we all love and enjoy. And, and so far it doesn't seem like that's what it quite what it would be, but uh, it's early yet in the game. So maybe that kind of thing would, would come to pass. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe some of it would just be different once people uh, believe it because one of the things people said, and it's a fair complaint is, Hey, he's been talking about this shit for like two years. Yeah. Uh, and so what he's just, he's just talking. I think getting back in the USADA testing pool is a concrete step to show people that he's serious about actually doing it. Probably doesn't help that his manager has been out there being like, oh, no, I'll only be involved in negotiating it if it's good for the UFC's business. Uh, but going back into that USADA testing pool and saying like, okay, I'll, I'll, be back in here for people to show up at my door at 6 a.m. want me to pee in a cup uh, that shows that you're actually you're serious about this yeah. and I, I think that that's why we should be looking at it differently now that's going to do it for listener mail this week if you have a question comment or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks you know how to do it go to the website comainevent.com click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us as for right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, all week last week, we pretty much said that the thing we wanted most of all 
from a fight between Kamzat Shemaev and Gilbert Burns was to see Kamzat Shemaev tested in a way that he hadn't yet been to date in his UFC career. And we definitely got that. We got more than that. We perhaps got more than we bargained for here in what turned out to be an absolute back and forth firefight and slobber knocker, which rightly, at least so far, should be included on some fight of the year lists. Obviously, that depends heavily on what happens the rest of 2022. But so far, this is one of the better fights we've seen in the year. Kamzat Chemaev emerges victorious with the unanimous decision win, but not before we saw a lot of aspects of his game, a lot of aspects of his athleticism and what he is able to bring to the table tested by Gilbert Burns in manners that we had not yet seen. And I guess I come out of it, frankly, thinking Kamzat Chemaev actually looks pretty complete. There are a couple things that worried me a little bit. But I feel like winning the fight just means he passed the test and he can move on to the next test. What did you see out there and what was your reaction to this really terrific fight? Yeah, it was a hell of a fight. Uh, I want to know from you, as a guy who was sitting there holding a betting slip for the who let the dogs out parlay, (laughs) where you had all the underdogs in the top three fights, uh... And you saw Gilbert Burns drop Kamzat face down at one point. Were you thinking, we going to Sizzler? Yeah, I was looking online. Be honest. I was looking online to see if we could order for takeout or delivery or if I could, <laughs> you know, get a reservation if I need that over there. Uh, yeah, it was an exciting fight, man. There's a lot of back and forth stuff. Uh, Gilbert Burns, I think, afforded himself well. I think this is one of those fights where almost both guys come out of it with their stock intact and or improved just because uh it was such an even and competitive affair uh and maybe we can talk about gilbert burns in a minute but everybody knows kamzat chamayev was the story coming into this thing he's the story coming out of it did he pass all of the tests for you did he check all the boxes that you wanted to see from a guy who has been getting this much hype as an up-and-coming prospect well, mostly what I wanted was to learn some more stuff about him. And I felt like this fight absolutely did that because we were talking about how difficult it is to even know what to make of somebody who becomes such a hyped prospect so early in his career and after so many quick fights because you just don't get to see him work all that often. And so here you got three rounds worth of work and they were working their asses off, but you also got to see how he deals with some tough stuff, how he deals with getting split open and dropped and how he, de- how he, how he takes a clean punch, uh, how he, he deals with a, a fight that gets a little crazy and feels like it's not a dance into his tune the way some of his other fights have. And so I think there's a lot of reasons to be encouraged by that, especially because it says what, like 11th pro fight. Here He's up against Gilbert Burns, who was a, a legit title contender in the division, who was within a punch or two, maybe winning the title pretty recently. And he went in there and absolutely looked like he belonged with him. And uh, when when this turned into a crazy firefight, he was there for it. He wasn't just... Uh, sometimes what we see with some guys who are prospects that shoot up the rankings so quickly is that they're fine when they're in control. When they can be the bully and they can push you around and get a bunch of people on the back foot, then they they look like world beaters. And as soon as somebody pushes back, they don't. Yeah. And here was one where he got pushed back, got pushed back pretty good, and he was still there and he was still game for the fight. 
he said afterwards how he felt like nobody could question his toughness now, if that's what they were wondering about. And I think that he did prove some of that stuff. I also, though, think that he he proved that he wants to go in there and get into some of this crazy fight stuff. He wants to go in there and try to finish you so bad that he is going to give you some openings to, to do something yourself. Yeah. And it's kind of inevitable people are going to end up comparing him to Habib and a lot. I saw people being like, I never saw Habib get split open, get dropped like that. Uh, but then the other thing is you never saw Habib in that many exciting fights like this one because that just wasn't his way. His way was to be like, I know I can do this thing better than anybody else. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do it to everybody, whether you like it or not. And Kamza just kind of seems like he got worked up. He was feeling the crowd. He was feeling the energy in the building. And he was just going to go out there and try to give you a goddamn show. And I saw afterwards where his coach is saying, I was telling him, stop brawling. Stop getting into a street fight. Make it boring. Let's just throw the jab all night. Keep him at the end of the jab. Throw a right hand every once in a while. And then let's go home. And he just doesn't seem like he has that kind of mentality. It'll be interesting to see if he feels like he needs to adopt that mentality after this one. But... One of the things you learned about him is that he is going to go out there just guns blazing, yeah. the enthusiasm of youth, <laughs> and and try to really do something. Yeah, very, very aggressive, especially early on, which is one of the things we knew that we were going to get from him. Uh, the shots on the feet were hard. The takedowns were suffocating. He had the hard ground and pra- ground and pound in the first round that that opened up a cut on on Gilbert Burns. Uh, I liked a lot of what I saw from him in the stand-up. Frankly, he was switching stances. Uh, the movement was good. The 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 punches were uh, fast and 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 hard and and for the most part like a good straight punches. Uh, and like I said, I honestly thought he looked pretty complete. And if I thought anything was was worrying at all, it would be partially what you just said that he sort of he seems to hunger for this kind of brawl, for this kind of back and forth action and that's a high risk high reward system obviously you get yourself into fights where again especially against top competition where you kind of refuse to play it safe and you know a lot of years in watching this sport i have seen a lot of people come up on the short end from having that that particular strategy and you've seen guys you know like habib and like george st pierre who kind of were able to sustain greatness through a more conservative approach so with Kamzat Chemaev the approach seems wide open and fun to watch but also uh like it might catch up with him at some point once he continues to climb the ladder and once he's fighting uh tougher and tougher guys uh it is the chin a concern for you at all obviously we saw him get dropped and get stunned in this fight uh, both these guys were throwing hard. We know Gilbert Burns hits hard, but you know, to see a guy that, that he enjoyed so many physical advantages over, that he's so much larger than Gilbert Burns. And they mentioned on the broadcast, Gilbert Burns used to fight at, at lightweight. Uh, was it a concern to you at all that, that Gilbert Burns got to Kamzat Shemaev's chin and stunned him a couple times in this fight? Uh, I mean, the concern is that he will fight sometimes kind of wide open like that and, and provide you with those openings. Not that, hey, it turns out that when Gilbert Burns punches him, it hurts. Because it's going to hurt most people when Gilbert Burns punches him. He dropped Kamaru Usman, too. And the key is he was up and back in it pretty quickly after getting dropped. So I don't know if there's too many 
I wouldn't say that the cause for concern is his ability to take the punch. I would say the cause for concern is his willingness to take the punch. Yeah. Uh, and, and that just goes along with the, the mentality and the fighting style, I guess. Because, uh, yeah, if, if Gilbert Burns can tee off on you with that right hand and land clean like that, yeah, man, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel the effects of that punch. I don't care who you are. So that does not make him any different than anybody else I've seen. I think that maybe the, if there's a concern, it's that he's still a little bit inexperienced and to be jumping in the deep end with some of these guys where if you are out there just letting it all hang out, they're going to find some ways to get to you. Uh, you got to adjust a little bit. Well, that is the big question now. What next for Kamzat Chemaev? I guess there are a couple of schools of thought. The first school of thought would be he moves up the rankings a little bit and he fights somebody like Colby Covington, who Dana White mentioned in the post-fight press conference, uh, just to to make sure that he has all of the bona fides he needs before he goes out there and, and fights Kamaru Usman. The UFC has given its stamp of approval finally to a Leon Edwards uh, Kamaru Usman fight. So maybe there is time to have both of those matchups. And if Chimaev is able to get by Covington, then he is he is a very able and fitting number one contender. The second school of thought, though, I guess, is this guy's hot right now, man. He just had this uh, fight of the year contender with Gilbert Burns. He passed the test. Gilbert Burns was ranked number two. He was a former title challenger himself. Why risk it? Why send Kamzat Chimaev out there against Colby Covington in a situation where if he loses, well, then you just had Covington, who has already lost twice to the champion himself, derail all your hype, all this guy that you've spent so much time and energy trying to get over, and then you're going you're gonna to take the opportunity, take the chance for Covington to, to untie that knot, to undo all that work that you've done? What say you? Let's see, you're, here you are, UFC matchmaker Ben Folks. What do you do? Do you throw Chemayev out there with Usman? Do you, do you send uh, Leon Edwards, one of those, uh, an envelope full of money, and say, hey, man, Sorry about this, but or, or, or tell him that he won that trip on the research yeah. vessel. Sorry, but you kind of knew this was going to happen, didn't you, Leon? What do you do? Do you do you like Chimaev Covington, or do you say straight for the title shot here with Kamzat Chimaev? I can't condone doing that to Leon Edwards. I just just ethically, okay. even if well, you're maybe already it would do fired. Good business, you're fired as UFC matchmaker because <laughs> you just said the word ethically. Clean your I locker cannot. out in good conscience, say that that's what should happen. I also, I see what the UFC could be thinking, saying, okay, Colby Covington is the test for you. But you're right, that if Colby Covington does win that one, then a lot of the air goes out of the Kamzat balloon. And what, we got to do a fucking third covington Kamara Usman fight? Fuck, really? Really? Yeah. You know, that just, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Um and yet also, you're looking at an 11-0 guys coming off a, like a decision win in his first big test, and then to be like, all right, straight to the title shot does seem a little soon for him. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if you don't think that Kamzat Chimaev can beat Colby Covington, then I guess what are we even doing here? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's probably what the UFC thinks is that he'll go out there and he will, and he will win. And if he doesn't, then we weren't going to get much further than this anyway, or at least not right now. Um, so, uh, I don't hate that idea. Um, I do feel like it, if you book Kamzat Chimaev and Colby Covington together, it's going to have to be one of those fights where I mute everything about it until they're in the cage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, you sent me this tweet. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I should give you the opportunity to respond to it. But fuck is going on with this Paulo Costa tweet, man? (laughs) Are you kidding me with this shit? What's... It's not only the It's not only the video itself, right? Where Kamzat Chamayev I'm sorry, Paulo Costa pa- zooms Paulo out Costa. from an extreme close-up of a fold of skin in front of his deltoid, which looks like something else. Mm-hmm. Until he, you know, we 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 pan out to reveal Paulo Costa. It's also the voice, man. What voice is he talking in in this thing? Like he's sort of it's kind of like he's trying to make a wacky Twitter video, but he's also he's kind of talking like this. Like, What's up with you, man? Like, are you he, fucking he's kidding praying me? for you? This is he's con- creepy. He's, he's concerned for your soul. This is I'm creeped out by it, frankly. I love everything about it. Of course, you. Would. first of all, of course, you would. no notes. Perfect, perfect social media work. By Paulo Costa. You know what? There's a guy who doesn't have his manager running his shit. And there's the proof right there. That's right. Yeah. I fucking love it. There's no way there is anyone else involved in Paulo Costa's social media presence. Because if there were, they would have stopped that. They would have put a stop to that. No oversight. There's zero oversight going on there. And I love it. You fucking kidding me? I love it. I love it. I love it. Fucking kidding me? Chad... Uh, we were just mentioning Colby Covington, so I feel obliged to read you this quote from the president of the UFC. I say this all the time. First of all, in no way, shape, or form do I ever condone violence in my people, my guys fighting each other in the streets, and shit like that. Pause for emphasis. <laughs> but, <laughs> on the flip side... When you're dealing with a guy like Jorge Masvidal and you start talking about his family, all these fighters, listen, say what you want to say about me. You hate me. You think I'm ugly, whatever my thing is. But when you start talking about people's families, it goes to a whole nother level. You talk about people's families and you're walking out of a restaurant and you better be ready for a guy like Jorge Masvidal to run up on you. Is anybody shocked that he talks shit about his kids and his wife and you think he's not going to do that? Of course he's going to do that. You've got to understand these guys were actually friends and training partners, so they know intimate details about each other, about each other's lives, about each other's families. And there's something that's called fucking man code. A lot of these young, goofy dudes these days don't know about it, but they need to learn about it. We talking about man code now, Chad. (laughs) I mean, it started out like, you know, I'm kind of... He doesn't condone what Jorge Masvidal did, but... You should absolutely expect for Jorge Masvidal to do what he did. Like, it's kind of on you for not being constantly vigilant after that. (laughs) Doesn't condone it, mind you. There's something called man code. Man code. I wonder if the man code also says, don't run up on me with your cameras rolling while I'm playing blackjack uh, in the casino with, with with some accompaniment who has to just... Subtly step out of the frame. I wonder what man code has to say about that. Man code. Fucking kidding man me. Man code. Fucking kidding me. Man, the man code should can disappear real quick and Mark Hunt comes looking for you. Then the, the man code is calling security. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I hear you. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. 
Hey there, Chad. Couldn't help but uh, see you about to slide out here at the end of the workday. Anywho, uh, Al Jermaine has just passed along a form he'd like you to take a look at and uh, see if you can check the appropriate boxes. It's just your standard boilerplate form for apologizing for fucking doubting him. <laughs> Explain yourself. Have it on my desk by the end of business today. Yeah. Thank you in advance. Now, Aljamain Sterling has decided clearly to lean into maybe not being a fan favorite. He comes out here in Jacksonville, Florida, a place where they seem like they are already 90% of the way to a USA chant at any given moment. He fights a Russian fighter at a time when Russia isn't exactly beloved in the international community. Chad Dundas? Yeah. And still... Even when he is shouting out, hey, Jacksonville, at the after winning a split decision to, to hold on to the UFC bantamweight title, still people are acting like he's in enemy territory. And, you know, what can you do at this point? You, you win a split decision, first of all, that's going to incense the haters. You know, they, they are already willing to get mad at you after you got the belt by getting kneed in the head. You decided to lean into it by putting on the helmet, reading the rule book, all that other kind of stuff. You go and you win the split decision. It's going to just burn them up even more. Is the only thing you, re- you can really do here to do what Al Jermaine is doing. Well, what, what else would be his option? Like they were booing him like crazy from the moment he walked out. It wasn't like yeah. it wasn't like they, they started with an open mind and then he decided uh, to go full heel. It's like they booed him from the start, man. I don't know what Aljamain Sterling's other option is in terms of, of how he will behave in front of the cameras. Like he's already been nice. He already tried being nice. He was nice the, essentially the whole rest of his career. And so like, if anything, that's kind of a little bit jarring to see him jump on the mic and thank everybody for making all the motherfuckers rich who believed in him and stuff like that. Dropping the F bombs and the MF bombs when his mom's standing next to him. Uh, it's a, that, that's, that's what made that kind of a little bit jarring. But if you're all Jermaine Sterling, first of all, I support it and I understand it. Cause like, what else is he supposed to do if people aren't going to like him anyway? So he, he might as well uh, to me, like the big thing here was Ben, you and I had talked last week about how, uh, this was going to be a tough assignment for Aljamain Sterling. Like it looked like he was fading in the first fight before the illegal knee from Peter Yawn. Then he had to go have the neck surgery. He had a significant time off uh, because of that. And then to come back and have to fight Peter Yawn for the undisputed title, basically in your first fight back, that was going to be a tough, tough test. So I think like, honestly, regardless of how you ultimately scored this fight, you got to take your hat off to Aljamain Sterling, man. Not only was he up for this challenge, which we thought was going to be so difficult, he gave Peter Yan everything he wanted and more. So, like, yeah. how you boo Aljamain Sterling before and after that, I have no fucking idea. Now, let's talk about the actual decision itself. Yeah. Because, you know... Uh, Dana White, clearly, you could tell when he came time, when he looked over at the cards to see who was about to be announced winner... It didn't look like joy spreading across his face. Uh, afterwards, he comes out and says he thought the judges got it wrong, that he he had it 3-2 the other way. It seems like a lot comes down to how you score that first round. What do you make of the decision there? Well, I think saying you had it 3-2 the other way doesn't give it the nuance that it deserves. Because kind of, I'll tell you, I know no one likes this, but I honestly scored it a draw. 
I had this oh, a draw. Because, this son of a bitch. Because I think it all I comes quit. down. I'm it, leaving. It all comes down to whether or not you give make that second round a 10-8 for all Jermaine Sterling. Because I don't, I don't see how you don't. Like, if you don't score the second round a 10-8 for all Jermaine Sterling, you are basically saying a grappling-based fighter cannot get a 10-8 in mixed martial arts. Because Peter Yan had not done anything in that round. Aljamain Sterling took him down, took his back, and was there for three minutes trying to work chokes. That was as dominating a round in a championship fight as you will ever see. And if it wasn't a 10-8, I don't know what I don't know how you could get one as a grappling-based fighter. So I scored that a 10-8, and then I also had uh, Peter Yan win in rounds one, uh, four, and five. So it was 47-47 as a draw. If people scored it a di- different ways. I mean, I'm okay with that because it was a close, a close damn fight, but uh, I didn't think it was a robbery by any stretch of the imagination that you let Aljamain Sterling walk out of there with the title. Can you imagine being the judge who's responsible for a draw in this fight and this situation? Yeah. After everything, to, like in, in Jacksonville, Florida, one one judge scores it one way, another judge scores it the other way. You come in there and say draw. They light you on fire. Yeah, it's easier for they me. They light to you on fire outside the arena. Uh, and then they they roast marshmallows over your burning corpse. It's easier for me to do in my living room in Montana with my little notebook on my on my lap than it would be cage side in Jacksonville. That's for damn sure. You are you are hopping a passing train to get away from an angry mop. Yeah. At that point. Yeah, you better have your belongings already loaded up into your bindle <laughs> stiff if you're gonna score to draw because you're running out the back door, jumping into a into a freight car as it rolls by. Now. I got to be honest here. I was not expecting for for one thing for Aljamain Sterling to be so dominant once they got it to the to the floor right away. I mean, he's so opportunistic with how he just snatches up your back. Yeah. And I also though was not expecting for Peter Yan to have so few answers for that. Yeah. Cuz I would think that that is kind of one of the things that you know about Aljamain Sterling is, and that's one of the things that seems like you that maybe you're almost more prepared for in the first fight was that that guy he wants to get you down, he wants to try to jump on your back, look for chokes, stuff like that. We've seen how he doesn't need much of an opening to get that done, and so then to end up there and get the body triangle put on you and to just not have too many solutions for it, that surprised me. I, I guess I thought that that Peter Young would have that scouted a little better. Or, I mean, maybe it's one thing to have it scouted against your training partners and another thing when it's actually Aljamain Sterling doing it to you. Yeah, well, his coaches continually between rounds were emphatic for him not to give up the back, but it's sort of easier said than done if you're not actually out there with Aljamain Sterling. Uh, and I thought, you know, to uh, to go into this rematch where Peter Yan had already seen a lot of what you do. Like Aljamain Sterling, I thought had a great game plan. Even on the feet, it seemed like he was using all that lateral movement, especially early on in the, in the first round uh, to kind of keep Peter Yan from being able to get set. Cause you know, we've all seen Peter Yan with this sort of suffocating pressure boxing style that he has, where he's he essentially starts to torture you with it. Just making 25 minutes in the cage with Peter Yan seem like one of the most uncomfortable things that could ever befall a professional MMA fighter. And it was kind of like Aljamain Sterling was moving so much, especially in the in the first round, kind of sliding around that Jan couldn't really get that going. It seemed to me like he couldn't really sit down on his punches. He really couldn't cut off the cage. He couldn't start limiting his his movement and start to implement that sort of, uh, you know, death by a thousand cuts 
uh, boxing style that that he had had uh, in so many of his previous fights. And I thought that that was a great adjustment for Aljamain Sterling. He clearly looked at the first fight that they had and said, I, you know, uh, I expended too much of my energy and didn't get a ton yeah. back from it. And so I thought all the way around, it was a great adjustment and game plan by Aljamain Sterling and, and, you know, Ray Longo and all the other guys in their camp. Uh, but it did, you're right, really come down to the grappling and the back control. And that's what made the fight as close as it, as it was. And that's why Aljamain Sterling is walking around with the belt on this Monday. You also take a second to holler at your boy, Ray Longo, yes. man, I, that's who I want in my corner if I have to go in there and fight a monster like Peter Yan. I want the guy who, after I have a good round, is being like, that's right, look at that motherfucker over there. Mm-hmm. You broke him. Yeah. Hell yeah. Fucking yeah. Ray Longo. Oh, I agree. It's no, almost no one almost no one better. No color, more colorful character in the sport than, than Ray Longo. Uh, two other things I wanted to ask you about this before we move on. Number one, Aljamain Sterling says he wants TJ Dillashaw, or excuse me, TJ Pillashaw. Okay. <laughs> see what he did there. Yep. Uh, I get next, it. is that the bantamweight title fight that you would be interested in? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And if I, it, you know, Aljamain Sterling at this point is not going to win over these fans who have decided that they hate him. But he can just continue to offer them up opportunities to hate him and to to get on the other guy's team, to take on TJ Dillashaw now. I mean, honestly, now is kind of when I want to fight TJ Dillashaw, when he's been off a while, when when maybe I can get him where he doesn't have a head of steam. Because TJ Dillashaw, still a good fighter, still like overall capable and competent, and it could be a tough test for people. But I'd rather fight him now than when he's in regular competition. Yeah. And so it makes sense for, for Aljamain right now. It's, it's a name in the division that people know, uh, it'll get people excited about it. And then in the meantime, maybe you give Peter Yan a chance to try to work back up to a title fight. It, it makes good sense. The other thing I wanted to ask was that early in this fight, Joe Rogan proffered a fairly interesting question. Uh, and, uh, you know, Joe Rogan at this point, kind of a flawed MMA broadcaster. Like he is, a, he has a lot of positive traits, but uh, fairly, the flaws are evident at this point in his his color commentary on MMA fights. In fact, the UFC broadcast team was so busy talking about Peter Yawn and how awesome he was doing in the first round of this fight that Aljamain Sterling landed a step-in elbow right in the middle of Peter Yawn's forehead that was arguably the most significant strike of the first round. And they missed it completely. Didn't say a word about it. That's my aside. My actual question is, uh, Joe Rogan proffered early in this fight that you shouldn't be able to win the title by DQ. That if a title fight ends in disqualification, maybe you, it's a, uh, you know, it's a vacant title. You essentially do, you put the, you put the, the title into a, a vacant state and then you would have these guys come back for their rematch where, you know, the, the title would still be up for grabs. And in some ways, like, I feel like you, uh, you know, maybe you, avoid a lot of the the fate that has befallen Aljamain Sterling here uh, in the wake of that first fight where he wouldn't be the champion. He wouldn't, people wouldn't have reasons to dislike him, et cetera, et cetera. I also think you can get yourself into some weird situations. Yeah, where, you like, can. I could envision a couple right now. Yeah. Uh, so what, 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 do you, what do you make of that? What do you make of that uh, suggestion? I mean, my f- initial response is that is some pro wrestling ass shit. That you can't lose the title on a DQ. So, you know, can't lose it on a count out, that kind of stuff. But 
don't you then you you're just giving the champion another thing to have on his side that yeah. he knows if it looks like I'm losing this decision, well maybe I get a little a little looser with my fingers pawing out there at range. Maybe I stop worrying about my inside low kicks creeping up into the groin. Maybe I don't wait to see if he's got his leg up off the mat. And you force the other guy who knows, hey, if I'm hurt by a foul here, I really kind of got to continue because uh, if I win by DQ here, I don't really win. I don't re- I don't get anything. I don't get the thing that I came for. Uh, and you just, you're giving the, the champion one more advantage. Yeah. And... I think that that's you, you got to think at least that far ahead. I mean, it's one thing to be like, oh, I don't think any champion out there would do that. But uh, really, I think there's some who would, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously. And they it just it would be nice to know if you're going into a fight where you're going, hey, uh, I want to follow the rules and I want to win this thing. But I also I don't have to worry about it as much as the other guy does. Yeah. He fucks up and, and kicks me while I'm in the head while I'm down, uh, lands a knee before I, I'm officially up. Uh, you know, it's a disaster for him. If I do it, it just means I get a do-over. You got to think about that. Champion would get down three or four rounds, and then all of a sudden, classy Freddie Blassie is out there throwing him a international object into the, <laughs> into the cage. In any case, uh, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, if you needed a reminder why Alexander Volkanovsky is the top-rated men's featherweight in the world and is your UFC champion, brother, he gave it to you in the cage out there against Chan Sung Jung in the main event of UFC 273. Uh, just such a smart performance from Volkanovsky. So crisp, so fast. He hit hard. He avoided damage. He had timely takedowns. He just looked incredible, and I don't really know what else you say other than that was just ridiculously impressive to watch him do that over the course of three-plus rounds. Yeah, it was. And it was just, you could tell that we're getting to a point where he was kind of feeling bad about it. And yet at the same time, he's so good. And it's so fun to just watch him work and to watch him put together such a, a complete performance. And he's doing it against a guy who we all know is tough as all hell. And I thought it was a one of the better stoppages we've seen, even if it's not going to get the, the credit for that. Yeah. Uh, just because it seemed like, all right, we can all see where this is going. The round's over. Let's see what his corner wants to do about it. And if they want to just be like, you must try harder and send them back out there, uh, then when he starts... When the hellacious beating resumes again, which it did pretty much immediately, then you go, okay, enough. I gave you guys a chance to stop it. I gave you a chance to to show something different. It's just going to be more of the same, and it's going to end with uh, just an even worse beating than what you've already suffered. No point in that. Go ahead and stop it. Yeah, they probably could have stopped it at the end of the third and or not let him come out for the fourth. And I think you're right. According to the translator, 
I want to say that the instructions between rounds for the Korean zombie between that round was, uh, first they asked him if he was okay a couple times, and he said yes. And then I think they said, he's leading with the right hand, so counter that. To which I think you got to give Chan Sung Jung credit for not being like, oh, really? That's what you think I should do? Just counter it? Okay. Okay, buddy. Uh, in any case, yeah, I thought it was a good stoppage by by Herb Dean there. There was a time early in this fight. I can't remember if it was the first or second round. But basically where they were just kind of squared up with each other, moving back and forth in front of each other. And Alexander Volkanovsky hit the Korean zombie with just a jab, just like a straight ahead jab, but hit him right in the middle of his face in a way that you could tell that he did not see it. Yeah. And Chan Sung Jung just kind of smiled at him. But I was watching and I was like, oh, shit. Like, he cannot see those punches. Like, Alexander Volkanovsky is just too fast. And that's kind of how it went the rest of the way. And it, I know Alexander Volkanovsky is, is probably not the UFC's most popular champion. He's probably not the UFC's biggest, you know, grossing champion. He's not going to sell the most pay-per-views or anything like that. But, like, at this point, watching him fight... The Korean zombie, I was kind of like, just find me the best. I kind of don't even care what weight they're at. If they are anywhere close to get, being able to get to 145, send them out there to fight Alexand- Alexander Volkanovsky, and I will watch because he is so masterful and so good at this point that I just want to see him fight the rest of the best guys out there. And maybe that's one of the reasons why the idea of a Henry Cejudo fight is kind of tantalizing at this point. Yeah, because at least it presents you with the possibilities of the unknown, right? Because it's not just that Alexander Volkanovsky is so physically good and that he is fast and, and strong and all that stuff, but he just has such a complete game and he's so smart about it, you know, that the longer you stay in the cage with that guy, the worse your chances become because he is seems like he's just figuring you out and knows exactly where you're going to be. And that's especially what he was doing to the zombie. It wasn't just that his hand speed was so much better uh, and faster than the zombie could react to it, although it was also that. But it's especially he started to realize, all right, I don't need to just haul off and hit him with a right hand. I can use my jab to move his head exactly where I want it. Because he is going to do what I know he's going to do when I when he sees that jab coming at him. And so I can just use that to, to move his head into place for the follow-up right hand. And that's what I'm really going to hurt him with. And did it like a couple times in a row there. Uh, and when he can do that to the guy and the guy is not being able to make an adjustment, and then you're kind of fucked at that. But what else can you do? Like yeah. a Minari roll? Like, what are you going to do to that guy at that point? He And there's no obvious weakness that you have. People look at him and they think, well, you should be able to at least get something out of being a, a taller guy, a longer guy, and, and work the range. But you can't, really. Like, nobody has really been able to successfully make a whole lot of out of, out of that. So what can you do? I, I don't know. And that's why he, it seems like... Now is the time to get creative with the matchmaking prospects because the fact that we were even doing the Korean zombie as an opponent here to begin with showed we didn't have any great ideas. There wasn't any clear person where everybody was going, Alexander Volkanovsky must give this guy a shot at the title. It was just kind of like, who we got, who's available would be fun. Yeah. And... If we're already in that kind of territory, that's when people say, hey, I don't think Henry Cejudo would be competitive, whatever. Uh, he should say a bantamweight or something. Why not give him a chance? Like, it's not like we're taking it away from somebody else who hasn't had a chance yet and who is clearly deserving. Yeah, you look look at the featherweight rankings and you got Max Holloway up there at number one. And obviously the Holloway fights were extremely competitive, but we have already seen it. 
a couple of times. You got Brian Ortega, who uh, Volkanovski just defeated. You got Yair Rodriguez, who's still a little bit of a mystery man, <laughs> uh, even though we have seen him fight a bunch of times. You got Chan Sung Jung, who you just defeated, and then you got Calvin Cater. That's your top five. And you do have some interesting prospects at 145 pounds, uh, but I think you can pretty clearly make the case that guys like Arnold Allen, uh, Giga Chikadze, and Bryce Mitchell aren't quite ready for uh, Alexander Volkanovsky you know, just certainly not without another win or two. So yeah, man, bring on Henry Cejudo, if that's the best we can do here, because I feel like that is an interesting fight. It would be entertaining, and uh, I would definitely watch it. I would take that, I think, as my first choice over Alexander Volkanovsky journeying up to lightweight to try his hand there, although yeah. there are numerous kind of interesting matchups up there for him, any one of which I would also watch and be fine with, but uh, I would rather have him stay home in his natural weight class if that is at all a possibility. Yeah, me too. All right, uh, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we can get out of here for you this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, as you know, UFC 273 was the first event where we are doing this fan voting through mm. Crypto.com yeah. to give crypto bonuses to the, the, the fan bonus of the night winners. Those winners were Kamzat Shemaev. I think he's he came in first there. Uh, Alexander Volkanovsky and Peter Yan. Okay. So the guy's in the d- top three fights. Except that uh, one of them didn't win his fight, but still got the fan bonus thing. Now, this was announced just like as a tweet by the UFC. It just says, as voted by you, the fans. And, uh, you know, here's the winners. And it just shows them... Um, First of all, I'm just saying, are we, how do we even know we're counting votes? Like, is that, or how do we even know any of that is real? Second of all, I'm just saying, eh, this does seem like the kind of shit that the fans would do yeah. if you just open it up to not to whoever's willing to like fill out whatever form it is you have to fill out to probably give them your email or your, your phone number or whatever and say, here's who I voted for. Uh, but I'm also just saying... If you were one of the recipients of that uh, that crypto bonus, I hope that you can convert it to cash pretty quickly, because that's that would be my question. And frankly, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when somebody had to go in there and explain it to Volkanovsky or Chmeyev or Peter Yan and be like, "Hey, you won this money, except it's not in money yet, <laughs> technically." Uh, and then you know you go and you look and you see like how is the how is the crypto. The, the Kronos and everything. What are we doing there? Uh, and it seems like I'm just looking at a website right here, Chad, where it says it is down 27% oh, shit. Uh, year, to, year to date. Sell. So, so this, this website, in fact, rates it as a strong sell. Oh. So see, I'm, I'm just saying, take that bonus and turn it into money while you still can. <laughs> I'm going to reiterate my thought from Friday's power hour, where you find out you win one of those bonuses, go immediately out of the cage to press row the closest laptops you can find and convert those things to dollars. If in fact, if in fact you can also, we do need to come up with a way to just mobilize the co-maniacs so that we can game this system and make it so that only prelim fighters win them. Yeah, because uh, right now the the way this played out looks like basically uh, you just it's you you showed a list of names on this fight card and s- said to a bunch of bitch ass casuals, who do you recognize? Whose name do you recognize on here? And they just went these guys. Yeah. Okay. There go the bonuses. 
Just saying. Just saying. Well, I'm glad you did just say that because I'm going to piggyback off it a little bit. And that is that this week I'm just saying, should we normalize just giving fighters money? I mean, and I mean literally just handing them money. Should we, should we normalize that? Because like clearly the promotion's not going to do it. They can't really have sponsors anymore. And like you said, when the promotion does cave and figure out new ways to give the fighters money, they do it with fucking weird Bitcoin scams or whatever, man. Uh, and you and I have talked about this in one form or another in a bunch of different ways over time. But like, should you just bring some money with you to the to the fights and give it to the fighters like a like a tip? Should, mm-hmm. should fighters just have like essentially have tip jars? Shouldn't we just, if we want them to have money, let's just hand it to them. Let's just hand them money in a big envelope stuffed full of cash because nobody else is going to do it. Just hand the fighters money. I'm just saying. Just saying. I mean, actually, in all seriousness, like you can have a thing that is essentially like uh, like a PayPal or Venmo donate thing, right? Like that's that's a thing that a lot of people in various lines of work have and like if i was an mma fighter 100 percent would have a, a like a virtual tip jar a digital tip jar and if i ever want to fight i would be on the mic in two seconds being like did y'all like that were you entertained hit hit up my tip jar on venmo send me a buck send me a dollar mm-hmm. please and if thank everybody you. here who enjoyed it send me a dollar things will be all right just saying, if we could just normalize, just giving them money. Just hand them some money if you see them. Yeah. You know what? Why don't go ahead and uh, tuck it in the waistband of their shorts? Chad Dundas has accidentally just invented an MMA strip club. Good idea. I mean, I are you happy you, with yourself? Are you disparaging sex workers on our podcast? Is that what you're doing? Because, uh, you know, once I'm you're saying, canceled and I can do this show by myself would be a real... It's a load off my maybe, mind, frankly. Maybe what the what we should think is that, hey, you want that seat right there on the aisle where the fighters walk out? Consider yourself. It's like the same thing of like when you're sitting at the uh, uh, right there at the little edge of the table. There's there's an extra onus on you to tip. Yeah. If you want to sit in that seat, brother, get your wallet out. Mm-hmm. Winning fighter. You know what? And even the losing fighter, they go back there. They, if they tried hard, they need that cash money more than anybody, man. They definitely need you to reach out there with a dollar, fold it up into a little airplane, just fly it at them. Know Normal, what I'm saying? Normalize just handing fighters money. Just you fold saying. it into one of those like ninja stars and flick it. Sounds like you have a lot of experience with this. <laughs> I do some origami in my spare time. In any case, that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Don't forget, we're over at the Patreon page all week. Wednesday's the live chat. Thursday's doing the damn thing. Friday is the power hour. Hit us up. Patreon.com slash co-main event. You can get in the door for the live chat for $1 a month. It's a goddamn screaming deal. As right now, though, thanks everybody for listening. We're done. We are through. We are out. Imagine a winning fighter walking back to the dressing room and just a shower of of dollar bills. Just like confetti floating down into the aisle. Well, then it becomes kind of important for at least one member of your corner team to be the guy who picks up the dollar bills on the floor. Yeah, probably you want to have a big vacuum or something. And you want to make sure that that guy is a dependable sort. That's right. A trustworthy chap. You know what? You know what I, I mean? would tell him, I don't care if a five spot makes it in your in your pocket. I don't care if, you know, $10 goes missing. Give yourself a little 
little uh, payment for, for doing this work, but most of it needs to go in, in the suitcase that we brought to carry this money home. That's what most of it needs to be, Brad. Yeah. Get out the F extra duffel bag that we brought here just for this purpose. That's right.